My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life, and you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Recently, I published an article on Forbes entitled, Why We Should Value a Powerful Question Just As Much As a Great Answer. It captures my long-held belief that we don't appreciate enough the power of finding the right question. And without asking the right questions, it's that much more difficult to find those elusive unlock moments in your own life and career journey. Today, my guest on the unlock moment is a real expert in the art of a great question. Seth Goldenberg is a designer, curator, and entrepreneur who harnesses the power of questioning to catalyze innovation and cultural change. He's the founder and CEO of Curiosity & Co., a -a one-of-a-kind bookstore, experience laboratory, and design venture studio, and the creator of the Ideas Salons, invitational thought leader retreats that tackle the essential questions of our time. Goldenberg has led high-profile projects with clients such as Apple, American Express, the Oprah Winfrey Network, and the governor of Rhode Island. His work has been featured in the New York Times' Wired and Fast Company. He lives on the island of Jamestown, Rhode Island, in the US. Seth has developed a signature inquiry-based methodology that will help you to think differently about the path ahead. His new book, Just Out, is called Radical Curiosity, Questioning Commonly Held Beliefs to Imagine Flourishing Futures. Goldenberg has shared his framework with hundreds of executives from Fortune 500 companies and leading cultural organizations. Now, the same deep questions asked by industry leaders at Ideas Salons have become crystallized in radical curiosity as practices we can implement in our lives and where we work, such as curiosity as leadership, how to ask questions, optimistic futures. I can't wait to learn from Seth about his perspective on how we question, how we learn, re-engage in dialogue, revive our youthful sense of wonder, and rethink what we value. This is really a root to your unlock moment. Seth Goldenberg, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the unlock moment. I'm, I'm delighted. Thank you for having me. What a, what a special way to spend a, a, a moment together. Fantastic. So tell me a little bit about the career journey you've been on, because you, you, you've, like me, been in a few different uh, career places in, in, in your time, and that sets up a little bit of how you're thinking today about questioning the future. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've, I've had the, the gift of having one of those nonlinear resumes, right? As, as, you know, I think even the idea of a resume is a, a kind of artifact of the past, actually. Um, but I began as, as a painter, as an artist. And uh, my, my practice as a painter began as a young child. In fact, I was exhibiting in art galleries professionally by the time I was 11. 
And uh, that, that brought me on a particular path that then evolved from the arts into more of a design practice, which still built upon aesthetics and visual communication and visual storytelling. But that quickly evolved into working with governments and working with uh, uh, Fortune 500 corporations across almost every sector. But I think, you know, even though there's this kind of very entangled, uh, cloudy resume, for me, it's actually been uh, quite clear that the consistency has been about asking questions. And curiosity has been a kind of uh, little uh, guiding North Star for my compass, whether it's been in healthcare or climate change or uh, finance, uh, no matter what sector, what we bring to the table, my studio and I, is an inquiry practice. It's a really interesting thing. So when I wrote my Forbes article, I was reflecting back on my medical school career many years ago, I trained as a doctor. And I looked up, how many new words do you learn in a five-year medical degree? And the answer is 15,000. So it's an average of 10 new words every day for five years. And it is a knowledge-based practice, ultimately, to, to learn what you need to know to be a doctor before you can go and do all the other amazing things that, that, that doctors and, and other healthcare professionals obviously do. And I realized that that just wasn't me. Um, and, and I found myself more in careers where asking questions was more the thing. But actually, I figured out that we can measure knowledge very easily and we can test for it and we can celebrate it and award for it. It's much more difficult to measure and test an award for a great question. Yeah, I love that proposition, though. That's, that's beautiful. I mean, maybe we should. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's not give up before we begin. That would be, I would love to live in a world where we, uh, we reward for great questions. And I, and I think in some ways we do, though, right? I mean, the knowledge that is a currency that we either economically or culturally reward each other for is an outcome of a great question. And so, I mean, one of the things we uh, put into practice here in my studio is the idea that all value creation begins with the origination of a question. And so how, how good, how great, how measurably rigorous and extraordinary the question is determines, I mean, in just mere economic terms, am I working on a $5,000 question or a $5 trillion question? Am I asking a question that impacts the next week or the next century? Am I asking a question that can really uh, get to the root of things or am I just scurrying on the surface? And I think if that's true, then maybe, sorry, just your, your knowledge, your, your point about we're very comfortable awarding, ranking, and moving knowledge to the world. But I think we're, it's almost like we're so excited by that, we skip right to what is known. And we don't realize that actually the most extraordinary value we create is based on if whether or not we're willing to create new knowledge. I think that's I think that's so powerful. What do you mean when you create this term radical curiosity? What does that mean for you? Yeah, so when 
When I was writing the book, uh, one of the things that was unfolding, of course, uh, it's, it's hard to not talk about the elephant in the room of the pandemic. Uh, I began the book just before the pandemic arrived and uh, really wrote the bulk of the book during the pandemic. And for me, it brought a new sense of courage to push with a little bit greater sense of urgency the kinds of questions that are worth asking, right? In a time when there are existential questions, somehow the little uh, shiny objects mean less, right? So radical comes from the root, the kind of Latin root, which happens to mean the root of things, radicalis as a Latin terminology. We have to kind of trick ourselves once again to ask the questions that are really at the roots of our assumptions, of our models, of really the human condition. And in some ways, that may be the net positive legacy of the terrible arrival of the pandemic, uh, that when we can't leave our home, we ask what home is. When we can't enroll in school, we ask what learning is. When we cannot be with our family, we wonder what family is. So in some ways, we have to have the courage to question the very kind of the very bottom of the layers of the onion, not feel satisfied by moving the chairs on the Titanic, but kind of say, well, where are we even going? It's not as though we have not had the invitation for decades or centuries. But it's almost as though we're in a new stage of the maturation of the human experience, where Maslow's hierarchy of needs are suddenly needing to be redesigned. Uh, I, I'm, I've been advising you know, entrepreneurs, businesses, no longer are we just shoveling money away so easily that if you just make the 93rd millionth app to swipe left, are you going to become you know, a millionaire? It turns out actually maybe the new frontiers are no longer the internet or you know, simply um, you know, digital interactivity, but actually maybe we need to ask how we're going to feed ourselves for the next century. Uh, it turns out food is kind of a big business. Turns out shelter, turns out you know, basic social systems uh, are not as successful as they used to be. But the courage is we have to acknowledge that they're not working. We have to confront that so many of the legacy models that we live by are experiencing fundamental fractures. And if we don't confront that, uh, then the opportunity will be lost. And so having the courage to maybe say, no, this isn't working or no, I don't accept that this is the best we can do. It is a kind of bravery because so much of this we've built our identities around. And that's challenging the orthodoxy. I, I was in a new role five weeks before the start of the pandemic um, in a luxury retailer. And so within the leadership team going through that period of sudden change where we went from, you know, the stores are open, trading and normal and, you know, people are flying around the world and coming in to in, in this case London and, and other major cities to 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 shop. 
and suddenly everything shut down and for the first time in a century the the stores closed um the pace at which people were able to change when they had to was remarkable so things that had historically taken 6 months 9 months a year or more suddenly in 2 weeks it was it was done what i find really interesting now is how hard people have found it to reproduce that anything like that kind of pace of change and as you say radicality of thought or you know radicality of curiosity to explore something very new people have gone back to it's hard and it takes time um because the 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 it must happen has shifted away and and i think i think we knew that at the time i think that people were very conscious in that time of remarkable change that it was something that could only be reproduced in those particular circumstances and and it wasn't something that could be sustained over time but it did kind of prove to people that you had to think differently now it's just they can't find the way anymore but in that moment there was the most radical thinking that anyone was ever ever doing yeah i mean i think you you describe probably what many of us experience quite elegantly and i love your kind of retrospective reflection if you will of of how to kind of make sense of what felt like an opening window um but also as that window is starting to close how maybe we kind of recalcify and uh find ourselves resisting uh what we just proved to ourselves we could do uh there's a kind of tragedy in that though yeah and so uh, your your framing reminds me that so the first kind of uh chapter of the book is called uh, curiosity is an endangered species and i think what you're describing i mean i i i agree it's almost like uh uh for many people who are inspired by change or were forced by the conditions to embrace change we all became superheroes right we all had a, this temporary capability uh whether it was by design or by circumstance uh but i don't want to believe that it takes a global pandemic for us to enable and kind of kind of nourish curiosity to thrive uh, not that that was the only thing unfolding but and so i i i kind of a little bit i wrote the book feeling a little bit of a kind of sound the alarm like why are we not asking these questions why why is this not normative what is preventing us and and why is it so easy to your be- very beautiful and accurate description for us to kind of fall back into a kind of normative crutch and that's some of the impulse of uh me deciding to kind of codify some of the practice I've been developing but also look and push and prod and do some additional new research to kind of you know push that hypothesis is it endangered species why is it endangered species what have i experienced what are those conditions where curiosity really does flourish and when and how can we utilize it so it is a superhero power on demand rather than you know when the world world gets a little wobbly it only shows up as a coach um very commonly 
the narrative of the person coming to coaching for the first time is something needs to change, but I don't know what. And they are in that moment where they know there's a question that they need to ask and answer, but they can't necessarily even put their finger on what that question is. So bring to life your your framework, your way of thinking to help people to unlock this curiosity and figure out the right question, the powerful question to help them to move forward in that, in that moment when they feel stuck. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the title of your, your program, the unlock moment. It's, and I wonder too, if, and I'm sure you've pursued this in the series. I, I'm curious, <laughs> no pun intended. I'm curious if you also view moment as a kind of fleeting moment or moment as a kind of series or rhythm of moments in in our lives. Because I think when I've been having these conversations about the book, people have asked a similar question that you're posing. And it's, it's as though I get nervous that there's a secret sauce and a secret silver bullet. And of course, there is not. The, the elusive fountain of youth doesn't exist. I was hoping you were going to give us a silver bullet. I'm really disappointed. Right. Exactly. No, I, I, know, I know you well enough to know that's not your, your assumption. But, you know, I, I have found the process of writing the book for me was really enlightening to not, uh, not assume I even knew, but to reflect back on patterns in my life, the series of situations or scenarios and practices that we've uh, been experimenting with as a study, as a practice. And one of the things that came out of the book was 28 building blocks, almost like a kind of periodic table. There was not one, but there were conditions or qualities or things we could do that would enable curiosity to further thrive. And that's why when I think about moments, the reason I'm framing it is I wonder if it's helpful for your audience to consider that a mental model shift is a lifetime practice. And I'm sure that's something you advocate for in your own coaching. I love the idea that you're a coach, by the way. I mean, just just to kind of really re-embrace the mentor, the coach, the guide, the concierge. I think it's one of the highest forms of teaching uh, the, the notion of a coach relationship. So I just think that's particularly beautiful. So I, I, I hope I'm, I know I'm not exactly answering your question, but I, I love the seeds that you're planting. Well, let me bring to life. I think I, like a number of people that I've, I've interviewed on the podcast, have had a few what I describe as unlocked moments, but I, but I do, I say to people, you know, focus in on the ones that were the real, you know, you think back over the last 20, 30 years and you're like, I remember where I was who I was with, what I was thinking, that's the thing. So an example for me, probably the first time that I, I really felt I had this, this unlock moment was I'd been in medical school for eight years doing, doing my core medical degree and a, and a PhD. Uh, and I was older than your average because I'd been, been doing this longer course. Um, and I was about a year from the end. And I remember this moment when the it came to me not in a structure not in a planned way i wasn't searching for it you don't have to do this career if you don't want to and that for me was 
an absolutely radical thought because I've been on a on a path that's quite constrained, it's quite guided, it's quite structured. You're with other people going on exactly the same path as you. Um, and that was an unlocked moment because I didn't know what I was going to do next. I didn't know what the options ahead were. I ended up going and, and putting myself in an environment where I could learn about other things, which was in, in the context of my university, going and engaging with the careers, events, and all this kind of thing which I'd never done before because as a medical student, your career path is doctor, hospital, whatever, whatever. It's a completely different route. Um, and in doing that, I suddenly realized that there were a million paths open to me. And suddenly I had bigger questions to ask than ever before. The unlock moment wasn't the moment of choosing what I do next. The unlock moment was knowing that I could. And so actually, I'm often talking to people where the unlock moment is a singular point but it then sparks a whole series of further questions. And I think to, to your point, there is no silver bullet, but what I think is really helpful in, in, in bringing people like you, you, you on is to help people create an environment or a way of thinking that enables them to find those moments. Those moments still come to them probably spontaneously, probably without planning. It's like, what is, what is the headspace that enables you to be open to the idea of a question? Hmm. Yeah. Well, one of, one of the threads I explored in this book was the idea of awe. And for me, as a, as a painter and as an artist, you know, awe for me was resonant somewhere around the notion of uh, the sublime in the history of art, the landscape, the color, the light that brought a sensory response. And awe, awe has recently been further investigated by uh, psychologists and neuroscientists and I think we're only now really understanding what happens to us when we experience awe. And as you were telling your story, it made me think that you were having your own micro kind of awe moment in the way that some of these psychologists and neuroscientists are starting to codify awe. And, you know, we, we speak about it in colloquialism, right? We say that we, we see the Grand Canyon and we say, whoa, this is blowing my mind. We see something gorgeous. We see a painting in, in the Louvre and we say, you know, oh my God, it's taking my breath away. My, you know, I, I can't take it, right? And so we're having almost like this physiological mind-altering experience as the result of often something sensory. Just real quick, because I think I'm, I'm loving the link to the story you're sharing. What I found was that there are essentially a variety of catalysts that bring about an awe-based experience. But what's really happening is that we are introduced to a disruption in which we are in our minds, 
literally, actually, neurologically, we are reordering our perception of the world in order to accommodate and acquire a kind of stretching and like a new code, like a digital code, a new grown radius of how we understand how things are, right? And so in some ways, it's like life is actually quite predictable, but like the experience you had of, well, the predictability might be you gain a degree in a kind of higher education format in order to receive a job, to grow skills, to do a career. But when you suddenly gave yourself permission to incongruously kind of cut across the grain of that normalcy, of that trajectory, you gave yourself permission to reorder in your mental model what this trajectory is for. And you gave yourself permission to maybe reorder your assumptions. What I really like about that description of reordering assumptions is the permanence of it. So when I'm talking to people about their unlocked moments, they never go back. They might not have figured out the path ahead perfectly yet, but they never go back. So it is these fundamental realizations of change. Episode number one of the podcast was with a guy, an actor, who I coached for quite a long time, and he was addressing quite a difficult but simple question. Am I pursuing success or am I pursuing happiness? And he probably sat on that question for about six months, struggling with it. And then he had a moment when he figured it out. And it was late at night. He was tired. He'd come off a show that he was performing in. And he texted me very late at night. And he said, I've got it. I'm pursuing happiness. Even if I'm less successful, even if I make less money, I want to be happy. It fundamentally changed the choices he made. And in pursuing happiness, he ended up becoming more successful than ever before. In pursuing success, he made the wrong choices and was frustrated and, you know, uh, was, was, was stretching beyond where, where he should be at that point in time. In pursuing happiness, he went for the things that were natural. In being natural, it came across that he was the best he could be and people placed him in, in bigger roles. Um, and it's, it's fascinating that you see that, as you say, that sort of mental reordering of saying, well, what if it isn't this thing I've been pursuing all this time and that's okay? And it's like a flash. You know, sometimes it can feel like you can feel you're an idiot. Why didn't I figure this out before? Why have I been living my life this way for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years? And suddenly it's so obvious to me that, that I can think differently. Well, I also think we kind of need to let ourselves off the hook a tiny bit in that we are surrounded by very powerful messages and reinforcing narratives that keep the mental ordering in a particular place. And it's, it's not so much, you know, it's not even like that it's a conspiracy theory of any kind of, you know, uh, Wizard of Oz evil or anything necessarily. <laughs> but one of the things I pursue in the book is that 
we are born into what I call legacy narratives. If, if part of awe and that mental reordering that we're finding common language about that moment, that unlock moment you experience, is an upending of a particular narrative, we have to realize that we are born into very entrenched, rooted narratives that, again, are kind of identity markers and codes about our belief system. So part of that courage that you and I were talking about earlier, it's also having the courage to question, at times, the very values that we assume to be unquestionable. We assume are you know too big to fail, right? And I think what we're seeing in the past couple of decades, and we'll see even happen more exponentially, those things that were too big to fail are collapsing right in front of our eyes. And so it further draws a courage from us to say, so it's okay to question my bank? Speaking of the phrase too big to fail, it's okay to question uh, mom and dad's wisdom. It's okay to say maybe the internet is offering me fake news. Suddenly, all these kind of narratives are getting debunked. And it's a, it's a kind of exciting time to be alive. It's a little confusing, especially when we live in times of uncertainty. But it also is why I think curiosity becomes the leadership practice of the moment because what was stable yesterday is not stable today. So the skills of questioning and discerning what narrative is a legacy narrative and what narrative is what I'm calling a kind of emergent challenger narrative, that pass of the baton is the sticky in-between space that we are right now. So when someone's listening to this podcast and maybe in their own life or job, career, they feel they're stuck in a rut, their opportunity is limited, but also with all the uncertainty going on, risk is high and their rational brain is saying it's best to stay put. How can they open up their minds to a radical new set of opportunities? Where do they start? Hmm. Well, so maybe building upon this kind of legacy narrative and emerging challenger narrative, one of the 28 building blocks, if you will, that we identify in the book is what I call upending indicators. It's almost like if culture, <laughs> culture is all this raw material, it's this landscape and currency of information. We have an opportunity if we put on these kind of radically curious goggles, this kind of lens or glasses of asking questions to maybe not just be content with things are what they are. Things are what they say they are. What we could do is look for patterns, look for mini flags, mini indicators that are evidence that things are getting upended. So if you're reading a news article or you're having a conversation with a colleague, Part of being radically curious is to begin to look for patterns of change, patterns of how culture is rewriting its operating system, and begin to see where there's an emergence of opportunity or space 
that maybe excites you to step into. And they're both big flags and small flags. I mean, look, generationally, your and my grandparents would never question whether or not there are two genders or 57 genders. Big things are changing. Suddenly, there are more than nearly a 100 genders you can identify on social media and in identity, socio-political context. And also, small things like, where do I sit in my chair to do my work? Which, I, by the way, I still believe is a kind of a small thing. We're still talking about the treatment of the symptom, not the issue. Do I do my work on my computer at the cafe, at the kitchen table, or in a building? But so many things. And so the question I think I would propose to, in the way that you're opening up this, this gorgeous kind of gift, when you say, hey, it might think so much is uncertain. Maybe it's just safe to stay static. I wonder if it would be valuable for you to kind of scan your life, scan the inputs, the stories you read, the dialogues you have, the variables that are presented around you and see if it might be a little less uncertain if you were to kind of zero in like sonar on those indicators that are upending those narratives that you thought were always rooted. And that might give people a bit of a map to say, actually, it's not so chaotic. There's, it's not just random chaos. There are patterns emerging, and I may choose how to navigate what I want to come next for me so I don't stand in place while the world reorients itself as though it'll reorient around me, I'm going to choose which world I step into. And I think the other concept that you bring to life in the book that ties in really nicely to this is the idea of optimistic futures, believing that the extraordinary is possible. And I think when I, when I come across people in daily life, there are people that I come across and I'm like, you're a person that feels like the extraordinary is possible. But I feel like most people, when they're faced with risk and uncertainty, they default more to the negative. They default to the, you know, let's pull in, let's bring the covers down, let's lock the shutters and sort of wait till this is over and then I'll emerge out into the world. How do you get people to believe more that the extraordinary is possible? Yes, absolutely. Well, I think I like your description of, you know, button down the hatches. I mean, look, uh, just to, for a little fun, not to pile on, but you, you've, you've tickled my, uh, my joy. I mean, I, there's a section of the book I talk about the film industry and the movie businesses, uh, extraordinary revenue growth on dystopian narratives, right? We've somehow made an economy, a $100 billion economy, out of telling ourselves things are not okay, <laughs> right? It's like, I mean, look, designers tend to be extraordinary optimists, to your point. And I, th I think, you know, I think one of the ways to welcome that is also to grab the reins of power. I mean, for me, the upending indicator is hey, it's not just crazy. It's not just chaos. You have power and tools to make sense of why this is happening. And I think maybe we need to flip the narrative that things are not just 
happening to us and we have no voice in this, uh, you know, even all the rules, all the models, they were just made by a couple of folks who are here a little earlier than us. You know, uh, I think I think I just said I, I saw this great quote once. It was like, um, you know, history is peer pressure from dead people or something. Right. It's like, you know, so it's like I mean, I think, you know, uh, Steve Jobs is just a human. You know, it's it's not a big deal. Like, I I think it's extraordinary to just imagine that we we are blessed with more tools and more capacity than we ever have been. So the question is not, can we do something? The question is just, what's worth doing? And that's really empowering to say, wow, we can do anything. What is worth doing? Right? I love that. I really love that. When you look ahead then for the next few years, for you, what's worth doing? Yeah. Look, I think even though it's an extraordinarily uh, delicious, optimistic, wonderful time to be alive, we are not without uh, our own challenges. And I, I find challenges not to be uh, a kind of negative dampener, I, I get motivated by them, right? There's a problem to be solved. It's a designer's mindset. I can't help myself. But look, I, I mentioned earlier the kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, we're, we're starting work and new ventures and new businesses around food and around health, uh, but not, not so much, uh, I think, the traditional definitions of these things, I'm interested in taking holistic views of all the complex entanglement of systems and maybe disrespecting them as systems. We call the healthcare systems as though they were designed intentionally as systems, which of course they never were, right? It'd be really wonderful to design systems, to design at century scale. Even climate change, we're not going to just stop and all of us will like, as cartoon characters, fall over once 1.5 degrees Celsius arrives. How we adapt and how we imagine a speculative future that just looks different than it looks now, that's an opportunity. It can still be glorious and fantastic. And I think the work is maybe to question, so do I need all 13,000 grocery options at any time, anywhere in the world, in any season, even though it's unnatural? Now, if we think of that as a reductionist process, it's not going to be any fun. And it's going to be like more Ovaltine, please. But if we consider that, how might we design food to be a celebration a tradition, a ritual in which we have to just simply reimagine the parameters to work for us under new conditions. That's really an interesting question. And I don't think it takes a Hollywood film studio to begin to imagine what we want our life to look like. So I'm very interested in kind of, to your point, the future. What I get excited about is what will the human condition look like? How will we live, learn, work, 
play, sustain ourselves. I, I only want to work on the big things. Everything else is, is you know, superfluous in, a, in an existential kind of future. And I think the unlock moment I might just propose is that I think everyone uh, has an opportunity to take back that power of the, the reins of power that I was talking about earlier to consider what about their experience, their human condition lights them up that they could not just build their leadership and their career around, but really build a civic contribution. Uh, because I think that raises a kind of North Star of purpose that also helps reorder and let the small things kind of fade away a little bit. I think we get a little distracted by uh, things that are really not a part of the fundamental picture of what matters if we have the opportunity to start to align our work around what matters for us. I think that's a wonderful place to land. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For entrepreneur and author Seth Goldenberg, his passion for a beautiful question has led him to some fascinating answers about how to reimagine the future. Go out and buy a copy of his book, Radical Curiosity, Questioning Commonly Held Beliefs to Imagine Flourishing Futures. I'm sure you'll find it a fascinating read. Seth, thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.